It is Locked On NBA Thursday edition. That means that I am joined by the author. Yes, that's what we call him now. We've called him many other names. At some point, we even argued enough I might have called him a bad name. But now we refer to him as the author. Ben Golliver, you're writing a book, my friend. What's the story? I am writing a book. It's called Bubble Ball. People can uh, pre-order it on uh, Barnes & Noble. There's a link on my Twitter page. I mean, look, it's just going to be my life down here in uh, Orlando. You know, I'm spending basically three months covering the NBA. Restart been down here, uh, you know, since July. And as you know, we were kind of covering it every step of the way, blow by blow in the months leading up to it. So it'll be a little bit about my journey, a little bit about how the NBA put this thing together, um, why it's been successful so far. And then, of course, it's going to be, you know, a look at the 2020 title chase, which gets more and more interesting by the day. So it'll be a little bit of everything, but I'm excited to write it. Uh, It'll be coming out in May 2021, but people can get in early now if they'd like. Another week of positive tests. They're awfully close to closing out phase one of this pure bubble phase one as a roaring success. And then the question is going to be whether or not phase two, which involves family and friends coming in, can hold to this level of a standard. Yeah, I think you're going to have some question about how many of those people do want to really come in, though. Uh, you know, you don't know necessarily how long your team or your player, uh, if you're a family member, is going to be staying. So that could lead some people to say, oh, well, you know, maybe not. Uh, you know, let's just wait this thing out. I think ultimately, like, phase one was easily the toughest phase. I think actually onboarding everybody down here was the trickiest part. Um, they've had great momentum with the zero positive tests. I mean, it's just been basically a month with no flaws whatsoever. I think the biggest challenge right now that you hear the leadership people down here talking about is just protecting against the false sense of security, making sure everybody sticks to the guidelines. But I think everyone's internalized the rules. Certainly, uh, I'm seeing fewer people forgetting their masks. You know, everybody uh, seems like they're getting their tests every single day as well. It's just become part of the routine. It's the new normal, and the basketball continues. And I think that, you know, all the, you know, the earlier talk that we had about, oh, guys are going fishing, oh, guys are hanging out, they're trying to go golfing and all that. You know, I noticed a real kind of quiet on, on campus this week. It just seemed like it was a more serious vibe. Once the playoffs started, it seemed like it was business time. Uh, and I think that uh, there's so many games at this point, there's almost nothing else to do except for watch basketball and for the players to play basketball. All right, let's get to the basketball. The Dallas Mavericks have even the series at one game apiece with the L.A. Clippers, 127-114. The Mavericks' number one offense in the NBA showed up, but they did it with... Luca playing just 28 because of some foul trouble. They did it with yet another in the line of Roddy Bois and Monte Ellis and kind of small scoring guards that were on the scrap heap and Trey Burke leading the way with 16. How much of this is just, can it possibly be that the Clippers didn't have Patrick Beverly? Like, is it that important? This team with two megastars doesn't have Patrick Beverly and they just lose their zest? Well, I'd say there's a big downgrade from Patrick Beverly to Reggie Jackson. So that's, you know, absolutely a factor. But I think we should give a lot of credit to Dallas here. I mean, before Porzingis was ejected, they were looking really, really good in game one. And they actually closed game one very well with Luke kind of at the helm. I think you saw tonight they're more than just a a one-man team. I don't think you can be one of the most efficient offenses in NBA history if you're solely relying upon one guy. You have to have capable threats at all positions on the court for most of the game. And they certainly do. We talk so much about Houston's style of play causing problems for opponents, right? The small ball, the stretch you out, all that stuff. But Dallas poses a lot of problems for opposing defenses, too. They keep guys out of the paint. 
basically unless it's Porzingis posting up, they're going to be almost perfectly spread the entire game. They have so many different ball handlers who can attack that paint, attack the basket. Um, and you saw that with the different scoring contributions tonight. And then, of course, Luke has just kind of been a maestro for the entire run here in the bubble. I mean, he seems very, very comfortable, and he's so competitive. I mean, you should have seen the smile on his face tonight uh, coming in in the post-game interview because they got the win. His message was three more. I mean, there's so much confidence from him already. They really do feel like they can win this series, and I think that stuff is infectious. You know, I love their team chemistry on and off the court. They don't seem to be making the type of excuses we've heard from some other organizations, whether it's the Lakers or the Sixers, you know, fixating on the idea that it's empty gyms and they're not playing at home, those kinds of questions. Dallas is just down here at a ball. They've got a great offense. It really works. And it's working right now against a very talented and deep Clippers team. They're just executing, and uh, the Clippers are going to have to find some answers. These are Paul George's shooting performances in the last eight playoff games he's played. You ready? Two for 16, eight for 24, 11 of 20, three of 16, eight of 21, 14 of 20, 10 of 22, and four of 17 tonight. So in his last eight playoff games, of which his team has won two, I believe, he has put up five massive stinkers, including tonight, four of 17, and he's shooting 39% in his last eight playoff games. So I have three comments to this. (laughs) If you're going to give yourself your own playoff nickname, perform, instead of giving yourself a nickname, two, don't rag on Dame Lillard until you can wave someone goodbye, and three... What's going on here? And I thought it was cute. He had ice back on the shoulder after the game because he's been in, he's been injured, said either seriously or in quotes, in every playoff series he's played in. Look, I think, you know, it's funny how these narratives come back around. I'm sure that when we were doing like a season preview podcast, like however many months ago, nine months ago at this point, I'm pretty sure we decided that Paul George was coming into the playoffs this year with kind of more pressure on him than anybody else. The only other person kind of in that category, I would say would be Anthony Davis, just because he's also, you know, never really gotten over the hump and he's playing on a high profile team in the Lakers, much like the Clippers. But I still think that's true. Um, You know, game one, I think the Clippers were feeling really good about escaping with that one, Uh, but they did not come back with the the mentality tonight. I didn't think of a team that's just trying to like stop on its opponent's throat, just kind of take care of business. And, you know, Paul George never looked comfortable Um, He had good looks. You know, they're giving him the ultra green light to shoot. He takes a lot of tough threes off the dribble, whether it's in transition, moving, uh, because he can hit those shots. He just hasn't really been hitting them uh, so far here in the playoffs. Um, You know, I think that he had a really nice opener um, in the bubble against the Lakers. And then, you know, maybe since then, they took their foot off the gas a little bit, rested guys here and there. And maybe he just hasn't been able to find his rhythm. I'm still pretty confident in the Clippers ceiling overall. I do still like their talent. I know people like kind of uh, nitpick at their chemistry and, and their cohesiveness on the court. I think that's really where Patrick Beverly does come into play because he's sort of their emotional leader and their vocal leader. They kind of rally and, and get their confidence from him. Um, you know, it's it's not a coincidence when he goes out, they don't play nearly as well. I think their record falls almost to like 500 when he's off the court this year. Uh, but, uh, you know, for Paul George, it is time to step up. I think it's completely fair to say that. 
Um, the track record speaks for itself, and the expectations are enormous. When you're looking at the Lakers' struggle as they have in Game 1, when you're looking at the Bucks, uh, you know, faltering in their Game 1, the door is wide open here for the Clippers to kind of make this their bubble, um, and, and Paul George is going to be a central part of, of trying to make that happen. I think what gets interesting if Patrick Beverly's not right is, and, and it didn't show tonight, he actually had a pretty good night, and his plus-minus is fine. I actually think Lou Williams is an issue for them, particularly in this series. Lou Williams is a fabulous offensive player. One of the great six men in the league. I love the guy, actually, as a person, just interviewing him and things of that nature. But he's a bad defensive player. He's instant offense. If you have Kawhi Leonard and you have Paul George, you shouldn't need instant offense. So when he's on the floor with those two guys, his strength is negated. And his weakness, which is he can't defend against a team that's playing five out like Dallas, is exploited. I think it's a real problem for them if they don't have Patrick Beverly on the floor in those moments and they have Lou Williams on the floor. I agree completely. You look at some of his defensive fouls tonight were really rough. I mean, cheap fouls, giving up three points. It was a, a major problem. There was actually some uh, you know, people in attendance near media row were just kind of aghast at some of the decisions that Lou Williams was making on the defensive end during this game and, and not being shy about kind of sharing that thought. Um, look, I've never thought that he was a member of their best five-man lineups this season. I think they're way better off loading up with defensive players around Kawhi and Paul George uh, because for the same reason why you're mentioning it, his skill set just gets to be a little bit redundant. We also not, know he's not really a true point guard, so you can't ask him to do Patrick Beverly stuff. That's why they go with a player like Reggie Jackson to step into that role. And uh, unfortunately, you know, the Reggie Jackson from maybe three or four years ago would be a able to you know, handle that responsibility no problem. This version of Reggie Jackson is just kind of a different player. You know, I think ultimately, like, Lou Williams's value in the regular season is far greater to the Clippers because they can limit their star players' minutes and, and give, uh, you know, a more important responsibility to Lou Williams coming off the bench there as a, a lead playmaker. But when you're tightening your rotations, you're trying to go to Paul George and Kawhi Leonard more often, um, you know, he, he's going to wind up getting squeezed out a little bit. And he's very easy to pick on defensively, the lack of size. Anytime there's a switch, you can kind of go right at him. He doesn't muster uh, much of a fight there. Uh, and, and if he ever gets stuck inside, it's just kind of all over around the basket area. He's not really a rebounding guard either. So um, you know, he is uh, a liability in certain situations. And if you look at his career, you know, scoring efficiency as well, it's taken a big hit in the playoffs. Until last year, really, he had not been a playoff player at all. He had a nice series against Golden State, kind of going head-to-head -head against KD there for a while. But prior to that, he's been, uh, you know, kind of one of those guys whose numbers fall off a cliff in the playoffs. So, um, I don't think he's to blame, by the way, for game two. I think he was one of the few guys who showed up offensively um, for the Clippers. Uh, but I do think that as they go deeper into the playoffs, assuming that they do, we're probably going to be seeing uh, lighter doses of Lou Will. Here's an interesting little note for you. Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, Patrick Beverly all on the floor together. No Lou Williams. Clippers are plus 13 per 100 possessions. The offense is in the 96th percentile and the defense is in the 91st percentile. The sample size is much more limited because Doc Rivers is a good coach, so he didn't do this very often. But Lou Williams playing in place of Patrick Beverly with Kawhi Leonard and with Paul George. They are only plus 1.3, and their defense drops to the 35th percentile. That mm. should be very concerning. What's your thought on the rest of this series? 
Well, my first thought on what you just said is that, I mean, it is kind of an open joke around these guys, how little he cares about defense because he's such a pure scorer and they always kind of crack on him about that. It's like every time he gets a steal, they almost want to like go out of their way to, to give him credit for it because uh, you know, it's just not what he cares about as a basketball player. And when we get into the playoffs and you're seeing all these other teams with extraordinary offenses, um, you know, whether it's, uh, Dallas has been putting up crazy points. Portland obviously has been putting up crazy points. The list goes on. Uh, yeah, I think that your series, uh, you know, Jazz and, and Nuggets has seen some pretty high, you know, scoring affairs as well. Um, you know, you, you can't have that weak link. He will get picked on mercilessly, and it's definitely something to watch. In terms of this uh, series specifically, I'm having a hard time wrap my, wrapping my brain around a more complicated thought than, like, holy cow, Luca. Uh, it's sort of just been, like, running through my head over and over. I was pretty stunned late in game one where he is just so easily getting to the basket, even with Kawhi on him or whoever else they're putting on him and just generating really good looks for his teammates or himself. I thought it was interesting that Doc Rivers after game one, uh, you know, made a comment. I asked him like, you know, basically what's his take on Luca having this, uh, you know, record setting debut in terms of points for a, for a playoff player in his first game. And he said, look, I'm okay with Lucas scoring. We just have to figure out a way to limit the points off of his assists out to the shooters because basically, in Doc's opinion, anytime they made a mistake on their weak side defense or, or helping down too much, Luca made them pay. And I think, again, you, you're seeing them generate really, really good looks. And, and I don't think that the Clippers' defense has really lived up to its reputation so far in this series. So that's kind of what I'm watching. It's that chess match between – you know, Luca and what we assumed was going to be a very elite Clippers defense. So far, I would actually give the edge to Luca. He's Ben Golliver, Washington Post. I'm David Locke. You can follow him at Ben Golliver. You can follow me at, at Locked On Sports. Today's show is brought to you by RockAuto.com, a family business serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. Go to RockAuto.com to shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers. Chain stores have different price tiers for professional mechanics and do-it-yourselfers. You go into their store and all you get is what they have to offer, pulling up on their computer what's in stock, but not at Rock Auto. Rock Auto always offers the lowest prices possible rather than changing prices based on what the market might have. And they have incredible selection from everything from tail lamps to carpets, motor oil to engine control modules. Rock Auto is cataloging is unique, remarkably easy to navigate, a little old school, quickly seeing all the parts available for your vehicle and choosing the brands and specifications your prices prefer. Best of all, rockauto.com's prices are reliably low and the same for professionals and do-it-yourselfers. Why spend up to twice as much for the same parts? Go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck while rockauto.com. Make sure you write in Locked On in How Did You Hear About Us. That's Locked On in How to Hear About Us box so they know who sent you. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. It's rockauto.com. If you're a news junkie and you want to get the news in 10 minutes or less, podcast Axios Today is there for you. Check out Axios Today with all the news experts and Nyla Boodoo bringing you the news and all the stories of their award-winning journalists in 10 minutes or less. Axios Today. All right, the second uh, game of interest, Boston and Philadelphia yesterday. Uh, Boston uh, blows out Philadelphia. Philadelphia rolled, I think, is a pretty fair assessment on this one. They were a dead team walking in, I'll be honest. I saw it coming after game one. You just look at their overall team body language and lack of togetherness. 
Um, the fact that, you know, Embiid is, you know, not necessarily completely integrated late in games in terms of, you know, getting passes from his teammates and, you know, feeling like they're all paddling together. Uh, you just have a complete contrast. The Celtics look like they enjoy each other's company. They're playing super hard. They're locked in, sharing the ball unselfishly, making well-timed defensive rotations, you know, just doing all the little things that you would expect from, you know, a well-run organization. And the Sixers, um, you know, it's been pretty chaotic. And I don't think we can just blame this on Ben Simmons' absence. It's a convenient excuse. But a lot of these issues were there all season long, even when he was healthy. I just don't think that team is put together very well. Um, I think that the, the questions about their coach have been hanging for so long. It just casts a shadow over everything they're trying to do. You heard Embiid after game two, um, you know, basically say they need to change up their defensive strategy, pretty much directly questioning what they've been trying to do, which has been having him, you know, drop back on, on pick and rolls and protect the paint. Um, he, he felt that, you know, guys like Jason Tatum and Kemba Walker are just getting too many easy shots on the perimeter in part because, you know, Philly's trying to, you know, plug some holes with guys who are a little bit less experienced into their lineup. So to me, this series could easily be a sweep. It wouldn't surprise me at all. Um, you know, Embiid made a comment, well, if we were going back to Philadelphia, this would be a whole different deal. And again, everyone knows you're not going back to Philadelphia. That's kind of irrelevant. It shouldn't even be on your mind whatsoever. And I think ultimately this is a team that's defeated. They know they're not as talented. They know they're not as deep um, as Boston. They know they're not as focused. And I think they've kind of got, uh, you know, one eye already outside the bubble kind of making plans to get home. I, I think some of this criticism is unfair. And let me see if I can explain why. It's pretty simple. They're starting two rookies for guards. Like, nobody's going to win a playoff series in the NBA starting two rookies for guards. Like, you can give me Joel Embiid. You can give me Tobias Harris. You can give me Josh Richardson. They're starting Maurice Thibel and Shake Milton as their starting backcourt. They're rookies. I don't think anybody's ever won a playoff series with two rookies as their guards. Well, somebody's got to get criticized in that situation because you look at the size of their payroll, you look at the expectations that they came in with to start the season, and then you look at Ben Simmons, who was good this year and arguably very good, but he's not like a top-five-level player. So for them to fall apart and for them not to have some level of togetherness at this stage of the season when they've got one of the most expensive rosters that's locked in for four years down the road, somebody's going to have to get blamed. I don't know if, that, if you want to point the finger at the front office. I'm completely fine with that. But I don't, I don't think we can let these guys off the hook just because uh, they're at that situation. Well, I don't know if I'm letting them off the hook, but the way they built their team, if they have an injury to Tobias Harris, Josh Richardson, Joel Embiid, or Ben Simmons, they're in trouble. Like, that's how that team's built. Like, because they have $120 million in those four players. I don't know what Josh Richardson's making, but it's pretty darn close to what I just said, I think. So, the minute they're missing, or and I haven't even mentioned Al Horford, right? Like, so they probably have 120 yeah. in Al Horford. Like, they've got talent, but they have no depth, and they have no depth in their backcourt. Like, I, I, I guess I'm, like, I think Boston's great, so, and I'm not, I thought Boston was going to win the East, and um, maybe not with Gordon Hayward's injury. So, I'm just not surprised at all that they're kicking the crap out of Philadelphia right now when Philadelphia is starting, like, basically playing two rookie guards. No, I, I can't say I'm surprised, but I would say that I'm just disappointed by how it's happened. I mean, sitting courtside at these games, it's like, I mean, it almost felt like they were trying to walk off the court early after the game. You know, do they even want to be here? It's that kind of a vibe. And, um, you know, th there were some very pointed questions towards Brett Brown along the lines of, you know, why do you think you guys are going you know, to be able to turn this around? 
Um, I just think that this is a pretty dire situation for this group, and it's been building for a long time. The frustration has been simmering. And I think when you look at the individual talented players that we've talked about, Al Horford, disappointment to me, and Bede individually has been a disappointment in these playoffs. Um, I would also say Tobias Harris, who, who I think was like three for 15 or four for 15, something like that tonight, um, disappointment. And so this team has looked good on paper all year long. And, you know, when someone does go down, your main, you know, big salary guys need to step up and, and try to carry the load. Those guys just really haven't responded, at least, you know, showing the type of heart um, and, uh, you know, togetherness that you would hope for. And uh, again, I, it's not a huge surprise that they're losing to a more talented and, uh, you know, a more focused and, uh, you know, I think better coach team, frankly. Uh, but I, I do think it's more about how they're losing rather than that they're losing. Uh, Joel Embiid is probably the question mark there. He's such a character. He's got all these aspects to him. But, you know, is there a seriousness enough approach is what the criticism of him is, right? I think it's fair. And look, he's a first quarter player right now. You know, he'll come out and look great for the first 12 minutes. And then he starts grabbing the shorts, grabbing his hips. Uh, the game goes on. Is his effort level sustained across four quarters? And they had to play in big minutes because it's a do or die game. And, you know, he really faded. I don't think he had a single field goal in the final 11 minutes of game one, in part because, you know, he was having trouble even just getting entry passes from his teammates. Um, but again, you know, the game got so out of hand in the second half that he didn't even necessarily have to play down the stretch of game two because they just couldn't keep it close. I mean, this was a player that people wanted to elevate alongside Giannis as being one of the most talented or highest impact players in the league. It's a guy who told us that he was interested in winning MVP and defensive player of the year. And, you know, you're looking at this matchup. I mean, both Tatum and Brown have been significantly better than him in this specific series. And I know he gets his numbers but the impact just does not add up. Um, you know, the, the game flow does not go through him. And I think still from a conditioning standpoint and just an ability to sustain high-level play, he's just still not there. And I guess I'm wondering, you know, when's it going to happen if it hasn't happened yet? Maybe it's time for a change of voice from the coach. That Maybe that could help push him along until next season. Um, but, again, I'm coming out of this thing pretty disappointed in him individually, in part because I had very high expectations thinking, you know, when you're, you're watching a game like Christmas where he just dominates and, and makes the Bucks, uh, you know, look like a team that's really vulnerable to Philadelphia from a stylistic standpoint, that guy, that, that takeover guy, just hasn't really been here in, in Orlando. How good is Boston even without Gordon Hayward? Really good. I understand the hand-wringing about losing Hayward. He's a really good player, but they've got a lot of other really, really strong wings. I mean, Tatum's absolutely been on fire. The best thing about him is he can get 30-plus without breaking the offense, you know. And, uh, you know, we mentioned Paul George a little bit earlier. Uh, he has not been at his best in the playoffs here. Uh, but when Paul George has played his best basketball, it's always been this idea that he can kind of oscillate between getting his own offense without hijacking things and just sort of doing it within the flow. And I just feel like Tatum has gotten to that same point like five years earlier in his career than Paul George did, which I think – speaks very highly of what Tatum's future is going to look like. Um, but he also just brings it consistently on the defensive end. He's really smart. He's always in position. Um, he's kind of sneaky long. He's not like crazy tall and with a crazy wingspan, but uh, he, he does, you know, deflect a lot of passes and he just, uh, you know, denies his guy the ball a lot. Um, there's a million things to like about Jason Tatum. There's a reason why Boston spends, you know, uh, you know, years or, you know, months here recently hyping him up as a potential future MVP and I think a lot of that stuff is, is looking deserved here. He's played very well. 
and I, to me, he's the guy who's kind of carrying this show. Look, Jalen Brown's been awesome and, and stepped up in some big moments as well, and he shot the ball very well. Uh, but to me, the, the story of this series is really Tatum stepping up and, and being the best guy on the court. Ben Golliver, Washington Post. I'm David Locke as we will now look next at the other two games that took place today. Plus, we'll look ahead to the Lakers and the Blazers plus the Bucks and the Magic, which are probably the two maybe least good games tomorrow, but the ones that have the biggest spotlight because those other games certainly have a lot going on as well. We're all out wanting to help our local restaurants. We all want to eat out. We my wife put together like a hundred straight meals at one point in this whole world we're living in. Well, that's where DoorDash comes in. You want Chinese, you want pizza, you want craving froyo, anything and everything from DoorDash. Continue supporting restaurants in your community and doing it safely. There are thousands of restaurants open for delivery on DoorDash, and they need your patronage now more than ever. Support your favorite restaurants on DoorDash. You're counted on restaurants. They're counting on you, and while their dining rooms will be closed, they'll still be open with delivery from DoorDash. DoorDash app that brings you food you're craving right now right to your door. Ordering is easy. Open the DoorDash app. Choose what you want. What would you want to eat? What food is going to fire up for you? And then the food will be laid, left safely outside your door with a new contactless delivery drop-off setting. Over 300,000 partners. That means you can get anything from your local go-tos or national restaurants like Wendy's, Cheesecake Factory, Chipotle, whatever it might be. Just open the DoorDash app and select your favorite local restaurant. Right now, listeners get $5 off and zero delivery fees on their first order of 15 or more. When you download the DoorDash app and are locked on NBA, $5 off, zero delivery fees, first order. Download the DoorDash app, enter in locked on NBA. That's locked on NBA for $5 off and free delivery. And Ben Golliver, do not go outside the bubble to get your DoorDash. <laughs> I won't, but I, you're making me jealous with that adderate. I'll say that for sure. All right, Utah blows out the Denver Nuggets. I called that game uh, from Salt Lake City. Here's what's interesting to me in this game. There's two things that are really interesting to me in this, three things in the series. Uh, actually, the series is fascinating. First is Denver this year, when they don't have jo uh, Gary Harris or Will Barton, are minus 3.5 per 100 possessions. Like, that's a big deal. They're missing their two wings also. Two of their, like, three starters. Michael Porter might be a starter now. So they're missing two of their top seven guys. The Jazz were missing two of their top five guys today. So this was a game of really, you know, underhand, uh, shorthanded teams. But but Denver is minus 3.5. Minus 3.5 per 100 possessions is not a good basketball team without those two guys. It makes you wonder a little bit. The other one that's really interesting to me in this is Denver won game one made a significant defensive adjustment because Donovan Mitchell had 57 points and started trapping the ball and playing their screener up high and not dropping the big, and the Jazz torched them. On an adjustment, well, you don't see that very often, Ben. You don't see a team make a significant adjustment change while up 1-0 in a series, and then you see it less than the other team's offensive rating. The Jazz offensive rating was a one 41. <laughs> well, that was exactly what my question was going to be to you is, is Denver's defense like danged if it does, danged if it doesn't? Like, do they have any adjustment they can make besides hopefully getting some of these guys who aren't healthy back? Is it just come down to that? Or are they just at a point where they've got multiple weak links that can be exploited kind of no matter how they, they put them on the court. Is it sort of a whack-a-mole situation? It feels a little whack-a-mole. I mean, the Jazz shot 20 of 44 from three, and they missed their last five. 
So, I mean, they were having an unusually high, sh- good shooting game. But Denver, the thing that was lost in the midst of Donovan Mitchell scoring 57 points was that, and jo- was that Denver went 20 of 33 on above-the-break threes that day. So Denver had a way out-of-body experience in the first game. And they still have for the series. They shot 48%. The Jazz have not stopped Denver yet in this series. That's where if you're Denver, I think you're most excited is that the Jazz have not stopped them at all. But I, it does feel like you don't go trap the ball. The Jazz are just running guard-on-guard pick-and-rolls or various actions to be able to go get Donovan Mitchell on Jamal Murray, who has yet to get a stop against him in the entire series. Or my, I mean, Donovan Mitchell is shooting five for five, three for three from three when guarded by Jamal Murray. He's shooting four of six when guarded by Michael Porter. He's shooting six of nine when he gets Nikola Jokic switched on him. He's shooting three of four when he's got Monte Morris switched on him. He's shooting six of 12 against Jeremy Grant and four of eight from three. This doesn't even count the free throws. Like, if they get anyone other than Torrey Craig guarding Donovan Mitchell, he just is going to work on them right now. So you're right. If you, if, if you do that, the Jazz then run the actions to get him to somebody else. That's going to be tough. Mike Conley comes back if he passes tests enough time by Friday, and he's back on the floor as well. well that was my next question for you, because I started to see some stuff on social media. I, I, there was a Mike Conley sighting standing in his window, <laughs> kind of waving at his teammates. It's an amazing picture. People should go check it out if they haven't seen it. Um, how much more does he stress uh, Denver's defense in this particular matchup? And I ask that in part because I think Jordan Clarkson went off tonight too, right? So, yeah, I think what you have, uh, on one sense, I think he – you know, he's not as big. They become smaller. They've been starting a big guy, and Jawan Morgan is an undrafted free agent. But you can just now do so many more things, right? You have three pick-and-roll ball handlers plus an isolation player in Jordan Clarkson. If they really are trapping Donovan and he can't get him the ball, then you run a pin down to Donovan on, the, on that side, and there's no third player to come bring a trap to. And if you trap and Donovan catches it, then Rudy Gobert's rolling to the basket wide open. So there's just – you add that ball handler. There's just so many more things I think you can do – uh, and so I, I have to assume he's going to help, not to mention uh, a year ago, Mike Conley, I think, was the third best open catch and shoot guy in the NBA. Like this guy can re- we don't think of Mike Conley as a as a bona fide shooter because he's so used to playing with the ball in his hands. But, you know, if he's the guy in the corner when they've overshifted, he's knocking it down. And I feel like that's going to be his future there. Um, you know, I, I feel like that he's going to be sort of just gradually kind of facing into the background a little bit as Donovan continues to do this kind of stuff. I mean, you're not going to be able to take the ball out of his hands. He's just kind of working himself into that spot where he's going to have to be that guy. You know, I remember when we were previewing this series, we were focused a lot on how Jokic had dominated Gobert during the regular season. It does feel like so far, is it fair to say that the series has been a little bit more of a backcourt series? And then I saw, just by glancing at the box, where I think Gobert was plus 24, Jokic minus 23. What, what have you made of their matchup here through two games? So, I think the first narrative was false. When Rudy Gobert and Nikola Jokic were on the floor together during the regular season, Jokic put up big numbers, but the Jazz outscored the Nuggets. So, while Jokic did put up good numbers... You know, I think part of what Rudy Gobert allows the Jazz to do is to guard Jokic one-on-one, and maybe he goes and gets, like, 11 points like he did in the first quarter of the game because he's going at it, but nobody else is involved at that point. And part of Jokic's genius is his passing. So at the end of the first quarter, he has 11 points, one assist. I'm not sure the Jazz hate that, right? The Nuggets over the last three years – 
when Jokic, let me see if I ha- have it anywhere handy. When Jokic is four assists or fewer, they're like 15 games below 500. Now, he ended up with six by the end of the night, but they were fairly inconsequential in a th- game which the Jazz led by 31. So if if Gobert's defense can take away Jokic's passing and getting other guys involved, I think that's as important as anything else. Today, th- this game just became a rout uh, in this end of the first half and into the second quarter. The Jazz, the Nuggets had just a brutal defensive quarter in the third quarter and the jazz had about as good a perfect offensive quarter as you can have the jazz went 13 of 18 from the field nine of 12 from three eight of eight from the free throw line with two turnovers like you start to do the math on that the effective field goal percentage was in the 90s so that's about as good as it gets uh, the so other one takeaway I've got yeah. from this real quick, my, my final thought on this series would just be that, uh, you know how when we get into a normal series that actually has home court advantage and you hit that stage of like five, six, seven, where the team with the greater urgency winds up winning and just extending if, if the two teams are very closely matched, uh, because whoever lost the previous game just kind of like comes out ready to rock. Now that we don't have home court advantage. I wonder if this series is going to be like kind of a good test case where like the team that lost the previous game just winds up coming out harder because they are, they do seem fairly evenly matched here. And I think a lot of people are predicting this to go seven, but I just wonder if that same back and forth effect is just going to be starting earlier in the bubble because you don't have the home court, you know, two and two in the series, you know, early in the series to kind of influence how things play out. Do you know what I mean? Like, could this wind up just being like this tug of war, like your turn, my turn, your turn, my turn type of series. I think it's going to – I would take it a little sim- more simply than that, if I might. I think it's just going to come down to a little bit of make-or-miss series. Um, right. You know, it, the only thing I'd be worried about if I'm Denver is this is a team that took, like, 27 in the league in three-point attempts and shot, like, 35%. They're shooting 52% in the first two games of this series from three, and it's tied. And they've taken 34 a game. Like, they – they're not shooting 52% for the rest of the series. That's not going to happen. Um, so that seems to be a little bit of an outlier. Same way that I would assume the Lakers are not shooting five of 32 tomorrow or tonight against, <laughs> against Portland, right? Like that was a bad shooting day. Make possible. or miss league or, or, or how concerned are you on the Lakers? The Lakers feel really weird. You know, LeBron made that comment that the Blazers are not your typical eight seed because they were getting, you know, guys like Nurkic and Collins back for the playoff run. And they have like a big time superstar level guy, and Damian Lillard. I think that's a fair comment from LeBron. But I think the bigger problem for the Lakers is they have not played like a typical one seed. They had big time defensive breakdowns down the stretch of the fourth quarter. Um, LeBron was not the best player on the court um, in that game. He didn't, you know, take over and, and kind of control the, the the stretch run. You saw them start very slow and just kind of back on their heels. And then you shot, you saw them shoot the ball terribly, um, as you mentioned, from outside. And they're really just relying upon their two superstars right now. I mean, guys like Kuzma, Danny Green, and Contavious Caldwell-Pope have been big-time question marks in the bubble and it does feel like confidence is kind of wavering both ways. Like, does LeBron trust them? He's still making the passes, but they're not being, uh, you know, they're not rewarding him by knocking those shots down and getting him the assist. And then I think also, you know, a lot of times these guys are passing shots up. You know, they might get a clean look. They're thinking twice because they haven't been shooting the ball well in the bubble at all. I mean, I think that their shooting struggles go back way before the playoffs. I mean, pretty much the entire time here, the last two weeks, 
they've been struggling to shoot the ball from outside. And I think it's into their heads a little bit. So uh, what I'm watching for in game two is basically does LeBron effectively just take things over? Does he kind of put his stamp on this series? Because if they go down 2-0, I mean, that's major adversity for the Lakers at a point where they weren't really expecting it. Um, and so I think they're already into that must-win category here. And I think ultimately, like, I don't trust their role guys to step up and be amazing shooters. I think this winds up falling back on both LeBron and Anthony Davis to kind of carry more weight here. And what's your thoughts on Milwaukee, Orlando? I think Milwaukee uh, needed to be punched in the mouth a little bit. They've had some issues um, as well. Just, you know, do these games matter for them? They had already locked up the, uh, the one seed. Um, Orlando, the matchup part that's interesting is just Vucevic being able to spread the court. Uh, Milwaukee's biggest issue is they give up a lot of three-pointers, and the math works out for them very well when they're able to go home and have the crowd behind them, then they're getting into a rhythm offensively. They can win that three-point game pretty handily, but you know, down here in the bubble, they're giving up uh, more points than we expected. Um, they got just lit up from outside by Vucevic and Orlando's perimeter players. They were just chucking threes like crazy. And I think what we know from Milwaukee is that they're going to be probably pretty late to adjusting almost anything from a system or a strategic standpoint and, and talking to one executive down here who watched their game, he was saying, look, they need to shake this thing up on defense. They cannot continue to give up as many three pointers as they typically give up because this has been considered a shooter's gym. Guys feel very comfortable. You're seeing lots and lots of offensive explosions down here in the bubble. You sometimes have to adapt to your surroundings. And the executive's argument was like, look, they're just kind of on the wrong side of the numbers here. And if they continue to stick to their guns, they're going to wind up going down with the ship, not necessarily against Orlando, but at some point later in this, uh, you know, this playoff bracket when they're going to be facing teams that can really shoot the three ball. Well, I would say that the bud is notorious for being stubborn. So it'll be interesting whether or not they make any adjustments of that nature. Right. And I'm pretty skeptical on that fact because they're so proud of how they played and it's worked so well for them. Uh, defensively. I mean, they had the number one defense in the league for a reason. Uh, they're great at what they do in terms of protecting the paint and protecting the basket. I do think that there is an element of this is a new environment. The game is not quite the same. Lots of teams don't have, uh, you know, key rotation pieces. So there's all sorts of adjustments you need to make and you have to be flexible. I do think that this environment favors flexible coaches and versatile rosters. And I, I think, you know, for Milwaukee, I mean, they are pretty locked in and how they want to play. It's very systematic. It's very top down. I do think that that makes them a little bit vulnerable, but I think they're going to take care of Orlando. Look, they won those regular season games by an average of 17 points. Um, Giannis is still easily the best player in that series. They're going to be able to figure it out. They'll get better contributions from Chris Middleton and some of their shooters too. I just think the big takeaway from game one is, uh, Milwaukee's defense is a lot more vulnerable than I thought it was, you know, before I got down here in Orlando. Probably the two games we'll watch the most are those two. The other two will probably be better. Oklahoma City looks to even with Houston, and Indiana looks to try to even it up with Miami. He's Ben Golliver. Go to at Ben Golliver on Twitter and make sure you get his pinned tweet, which is a newsletter to his uh, Washington Post. And also the new book is coming out. You can pre-order it at, at uh, Barnes & Noble, and it's called Bubble Ball. That is what Ben Golliver's up to these days. I'm David Locke. Thanks for tuning in to Locked On NBA. Anthony and Adam will be with you tomorrow for Locked On NBA, reviewing tonight's games for you. If you want more right now, tell your smart device to listen to the most recent episode of podcast, Locked On Fantasy Basketball.